It's Monday, November 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump continues to refuse to concede and maintains that the election was stolen from him. Despite any real evidence, the new line of attack is over voting machines they say were switching votes to Joe Biden. Rudy Giuliani has now been put in charge of challenging the outcome of the election. Meanwhile, coronavirus is at the top of the list for President-elect Joe Biden's to-do list. He is facing questions about whether he would support a national lockdown after a member of his COVID advisory board had suggested one. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us to break it all down. Next, after some good news last week about Pfizer's vaccine candidate, everyone is looking toward the next steps, how to distribute it to the country. There's still plenty of time to work out the kinks, but many states are not ready to get it out, especially in rural areas. The Pfizer vaccine is unusually difficult to ship and store. It must be kept in super cold temperatures and has a short shelf life after being opened. The military will help ship the vaccine to states, but once they get it delivered, it's up to the states to distribute. Isaac Arnsdorf, reporter at ProPublica, joins us for the challenges states are facing in distributing the leading vaccine candidate. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Not only did they use a Venezuelan company to count our ballots, which almost should be illegal per se. Uh, Number two, they didn't allow Republicans in key places to observe the, the mail vote. That makes the mail vote completely invalid. Now, they didn't do it everywhere. They did it in big cities where they have corrupt machines that will protect them. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about President Trump. We've been seeing a lot of tweets from him. He hasn't really been out publicly. The last time he was out publicly, it was uh, for an update in Operation Warp Speed. He didn't take any questions. He didn't really say anything about the election either. So the only thing that we're hearing from him is from his legal team and then from tweets. And uh, over the weekend, he did kind of acknowledge that Joe Biden won the election, but he said only because it was rigged. And then from then on, you know, he went on to say that he's not going to concede. He's not giving up. We will win. I wanted to ask where do you think his headspace is or what have we heard from other people who have talked to the president? I mean, he has to see that this is kind of a losing argument, despite, you know, uh, tons of his supporters still agreeing with him and thinking that the election was stolen. I wish I could read the president's headspace. Um, that would have made the last four e- years a lot easier for me. Uh, <laughs> but um, we're getting this sense from people and my colleagues at NBC News reporting that he's hearing different things inside his inner circle. There has been something at times of a push to sort of make him sort of come to terms with what has happened, which is that he has lost re-election. And then some who think that he should fight and continue to try to exhaust every legal avenue. And then I think there are some who sort of feel that there is no harm done and letting him pursue these legal cases and that they can just let him keep going about as he is now. I, I think that what we see is a is a president who um, very much wants to keep up the fight, uh, but is having to grapple with the realities that states are going to start certifying their results in the next week. Um, these are going to be written uh, in a lot more stone than they are now. And his legal fight is just not producing any wins or evidence at all. Let's talk a little bit about some of those lawsuits. They've been really in the kind of five big battleground states. 
And there's been a, a mix of things happening. A lot of judges have been throwing out some of the lawsuits. They've withdrawn some of the lawsuits, but still really no widespread voter fraud, despite a lot of the suggestion that there is. You know, the latest thing I heard was about these Dominion voting machines and how they were deleting millions of votes or hundreds of thousands of votes for Donald Trump and sending them to Joe Biden. I mean, you know, you look at what it would take, given the results that we now have for the president to make the case that he was denied victory by fraud. One election official on the Today Show this morning said, you're talking about James Bond level fraud across the country to justify those kind of numbers. I mean, it's not 10 votes. It's hundreds of thousands of votes that the president trails Joe Biden by in these crucial swing states. And so now we saw the president on Sunday tweeting about these really unfounded conspiracy theories that this company was affecting the machine that owns the machines or had built the machines was, was sort of engaged in theft. I mean, you think back, we've had rounds in our country of voter fraud by digital machine. The last time there were those conspiracy theories, it was to the benefit of Republicans, not Democrats. So they were also not true. Uh, I just think he's reaching. He's trying to find anything he could to get and make the argument that that he's been egregious here, even when there's just no evidence. Yeah. I mean, with these Dominion voting machines, you know, conservative media was picking it up a lot and they were quoting Edison Research saying they put out a report that this is what was happening. And people reached out to Edison Research and they said, we never made such reports. So, uh, you know, a lot of these allegations are very thinly sourced. And now enter Rudy Giuliani. He is going to be heading up all of the challenges to the outcome of the election. He did an interview with Fox News and very similar. He says, oh, there's a ton of stuff going on. They asked him, well, can you, are you guys going to be able to prove it in court? And he says, well, the person that I have, I can't disclose who it is right now. So it's always this kind of running around the whole message of like, they, there is this fraud, but we can't tell you exactly what it is or how it's playing out just yet. I mean, this has been Rudy Giuliani's playbook for months, maybe years now in the Trump administration. He has proof of something, so he says, and he like dangles it out and he will tell you in due time, he claims. And then at the end of the day, it all falls apart and there is no evidence there of the, of the wrongdoing that he claims to have proof. Um, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, and I think that that's how a lot of people are going to take anything that Rudy Giuliani says. Moving on to Joe Biden, though, the shadow transition, however you want to call it, is kind of still going on. And obviously, coronavirus is on the top of his agenda. And one of the things that was being thrown around was a round of national lockdowns, possibly. Somebody on his coronavirus advisory board said maybe four to six weeks, things like that. But uh, I think the signals are that Joe Biden doesn't necessarily want a national lockdown. So that's kind of been a big topic of discussion on that front. That's right. Joe Biden has said he doesn't want another round of lockdowns. In fact, that aide who was the one who made the remarks came back and said that he wasn't suggesting that be something that was done, but was saying that it was a thing that could be considered and saying what effects it would have if it was done. I don't think we're going to see a a national four to six week lockdown. And, And I think we're seeing governors who are taking some of these steps, trying to adjust what they're doing different from what they did in March. 
you know, we saw some in the in the task force say uh, there may need to be a, a tightening of restrictions, but uh, they don't need to tighten in the same way. Uh, retail could hopefully all stay open. We don't all have to go back inside our houses right. and not come out like we did in the spring. Is the message just needing to do more more strict provisions in order to move forward? And, and some governors are already acting on their own. New Mexico and Oregon are trying to decide whether they might do some modified lockdowns, things like that. So uh, if anything, that's kind of the signal that they're sending out that they would do something or, you know, the governors would step up and do something if they needed to do it that way. And finally, I just want to talk a little bit about Joe Biden's cabinet. You know, he has to build all his advisors, all the people that are going to help him run the government. He has decided to uh, announce that Ron Klain is going to be his chief of staff. He served with him. He was already his chief of staff during the Obama administration, so they have a relationship there. And uh, He was famously called the Ebola czar back in the day. Ron Klain ran the government's response to Ebola. So there's a sense inside the Biden world that he has a lot of experience with epidemics and that he is well versed in the way that the U.S. responds to them. And that positions him really well to be the chief of staff. And like you said, there's a relationship there. He worked for the vice president when he was vice president. He worked for Vice President Al Gore. He doesn't need a tour of the West Wing. He knows his way around the building. And so I think that that's the hope that he'll be able to really hit the ground running. And we're going to see in the coming weeks, I expect that what we're going to see first is some of the more of the senior White House aides announce people who will be working directly. And you'll probably recognize names from the Obama administration. And then moving into those cabinet positions, those high ranking positions in the agencies. You know, you mentioned Trump not conceding, them not beginning the transition. You called it a a shadow transition. One of the delays that we're going to see is as those people are named, they can't start the process of getting their security clearance, which is how they're able to start working for the government. And so, as you said, Republicans increasingly pressuring for White House briefings or presidential briefings for Joe Biden. I think as more people's names start to be announced, we're also going to hear clamor for those people to get the type of approvals they need to be able to start doing their jobs. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It has to be kept very, very cold, 100 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. And it comes in these boxes of a minimum of a thousand doses. And once you open it, you have to use it within a few days. So that creates some real logistical challenges. Joining us now is Isaac Arnsdorf, reporter at ProPublica. Thanks for joining us, Isaac. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about some more vaccine news. We got news from Pfizer some really good news that their vaccine candidate is 90% effective in the people that were involved in their clinical trials. So right away that gets everybody excited for it possibly getting approved pretty soon. But then comes the extremely difficult part is distributing it across the country. And there at ProPublica, you guys got a bunch of preliminary plans from pretty much every state in the country. And these distribution plans kind of reveal that they don't really know how they're going to deal with a lot of the difficulties of storage and transportation requirements, specifically with Pfizer's vaccine candidate. Tell us about all the information that you got. And then with regards to Pfizer, just because we know about them the most right now, how difficult it is to ship and store theirs. They have so many different things that go into it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this Pfizer vaccine that just had these very impressive initial results and is likely to be first out of the gate, 
is unusually difficult to handle. And what I mean by that is a few things. So it's two doses that are 28 days apart, and it has to be kept very, very cold, 100 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. And it comes in these boxes of a minimum of a thousand doses. And once you open it, you have to use it within a few days. So that creates some real logistical challenges. You know, it's, it's one thing if you think about like a kind of a mass vaccination site where you're going to have a lot of people in a densely populated place coming through and using that up. But when you start to think about more rural and remote places that probably don't have the equipment to keep the vaccine at that low temperature and don't have enough people to use up the vaccine in that amount of time, that's really a curveball that states are struggling with how to deal with. I want to just kind of go off a little bit more on the difficulties because you had this part in the article that, I mean, when I was reading through it, my jaw dropped a little bit. So they're going to be shipped, as you said, in packages, minimum of a thousand doses with dry ice, right? So that ice can be replenished up to three times but once it's opened, it can keep the vaccine for five days. You can't open it more than twice a day, and then it can survive in the refrigerator for about five days, but can't be refrozen if unused. So, I mean, <laughs> just going through that makes me think that we're going to probably lose a lot of these vaccines in transit and in improper storage. So looking into the plans of various states, what did you guys find out about their preparedness for this? Well, that's something that nobody wants to happen for sure, especially at the beginning when there's going to be a limited supply of vaccines. They definitely don't want any to go to waste. And but they're balancing that against, you know, they, they're, they've identified who to prioritize. So first they want healthcare workers to be first in line. And then they're looking at other essential workers and people who are most at risk for serious disease. But you could certainly imagine, and some of the state's plans contemplate, that there could be situations where they run out of people who meet the initial eligibility criteria, but they don't want any of the vaccine to spoil. So then they end up opening it up to people who might otherwise be in a lower priority category. But that's one of these really, you know, the number of states were pointing out like, gee, you know, if, if we have this Pfizer vaccine, but then we have one of the other vaccines that's easier to handle, we would love to just use the Pfizer vaccine in some places and then use the other vaccine in more rural places. But we don't know that that's how it's going to turn out, that there are going to be multiple available, especially at the beginning. One of the other things about this, uh, obviously, we've heard a lot about Operation Warp Speed, There's been a little bit of muddying of the message. I think the president and others have said that the military is going to distribute all of the vaccines. It's not technically true. Feds are going to distribute the vaccines to the states. And then beyond that, it's for the states to distribute them across the state to these hospitals and to all the people that need it first. So tell me how that coordination works out. Yeah, that's right. This is not a military operation. It is not going to be uniformed troops carrying the vaccine from the factory to the doctor's office. What it really is, is it's modeled off of the way that the CDC and state health authorities distribute the flu vaccine every year. But obviously, this is a a much larger scale and is much more complicated for a bunch of other reasons. 
So the, the military was involved in the advanced logistical planning and manufacturing supply chain side. But once it gets to the actual distribution, the, you're right, the federal government's going to deliver it to the states, and then the states have to figure it out from there. Um, and that's another problem that they're dealing with with this Pfizer vaccine and these very large shipment sizes is the federal government is only going to move it once. And so if the state determines, you know, we can't, we can't deal with this 1,000 dose carton. We need to break that up so we can send it to smaller places. Then the state's got to handle that on its own, which is obviously like physically difficult, but also expensive. And the federal government's not going to pay for that. The state has to figure out how to pay for that. And right now, the states have only gotten $200 million for this entire vaccine distribution enterprise when the CDC director says it's really going to cost like $6 billion. Wow. And as you mentioned, you know, the rural communities are obviously offering the greatest challenge to all of this. You had a specific example of Mount Vernon Countryside Manor, I guess, which is a, a nursing home in southern Illinois. That's more than 100 miles away from the nearest major city. And those are the first vulnerable populations that we need to vaccinate, the healthcare workers there and then the patients themselves. So these are the types of real intricate details that need to be figured out so that the vaccine gets there safely without going to waste. Yeah, that's exactly right. A, a lot of rural areas are unfortunately where we're seeing the biggest spikes in cases right now. And, you know, one that sticks out of my mind is North Dakota, obviously not a huge population state, but terrible coronavirus outbreak there currently. One in almost 1,200 people in North Dakota has died of COVID. And their state did a really good job with their plan in terms of having it's really thorough, it's really detailed and, it, and you could see them grappling with all the really difficult things that North Dakota is going to have with distribution there because of how spread out it is, how, how sparsely populated it is, the weather. They have a lot of migrant workers who don't live in the state but, but are, are there temporarily for the oil industry. So, uh, you know, they addressed all of these things and they, and they did a really good job, but they just don't have answers to how all of that's going to work out yet. Yeah, and that's part of the thing you mentioned in your article, too, is all the changing factors, you know, and new information mm -hmm. that we get constantly changes those plans as well. So it's a moving target that you're really trying to hit there. You, you, as I mentioned, you know, you guys obtained the preliminary plans for 47 states. Were there any states in particular that seemed really prepared to handle this very well? Yeah, to varying degrees. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I can't really say that anyone has an has an answer to the logistical challenge of the Pfizer vaccine in rural areas. Some states, like I remember Massachusetts said that they, even though the CDC said, don't worry about buying that ultra cold freezers to deal with a Pfizer vaccine, Massachusetts said, you know, we're, we're going to do that anyway. And there were some other states that were kind of lining up their dry ice vendors I also um, think about Maryland, which I'm a, maybe a little bit partial to because it's where I'm from. But they did a, like a really thorough analysis of their critical populations in terms of how many people are in each category and where they are. Whereas some other states like Texas just looked at the they kind of listed the data source that they're going to use to find that information. But they hadn't done the analysis yet. And you know, I thought there were some there are some also some other interesting choices you can see, like Maryland is putting a priority on populations in jails and prisons where there have been a lot of really serious COVID outbreaks, whereas some other states are scheduling them for later on. 
And I'm also thinking about states like Georgia that are kind of their plan kind of pushed a lot of the responsibility off to local county jurisdictions rather than deciding things at the state level like other states did. Well, it's, I mean, really interesting to see how things develop. We've really seen everything from vaccine development, and we're witnessing it all in real time, right? Vaccine development to vaccine distribution when we finally get there. I mean, it's very interesting to follow. So we'll keep an eye on all of that. Isaac Arnsdorf, reporter at ProPublica, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.